I get little scouts that start going up into my my forehead and I'm like, what are you doing? The eyebrows like half an inch lower. <laughs> you laugh, but it's true. <laughs> really paint uh, a sexy view of myself. There's a reason I have a face for podcasting. <laughs> yeah. She's gorgeous. Don't let her fool you guys. It's fine. <laughs> Welcome to another episode of My Favorite Feminist. My name is Megan, and I'm here with my co-host, Milena. Today we're going to learn about a 19th century French Victorian woman with a shit ton of money, and which woman put man on the moon. Spoiler alert, they're both badasses. They are. Yeah, who I'm about to do. She is very multifaceted in her interest and what she did. It was pretty fun. She was really, she was really fun to learn about, so I'm looking forward to being able to share her with you guys. Well... My uh, my lady is not a polymath, but she did a lot of math, if that counts for something, or one kind of math. That's cool, because, yeah, math and me don't necessarily go hand in hand at all. No, we're going to have a very hard time this episode. But the reason I did her was because, I mean, we're like a couple weeks late, but, you know, with Katie Bowman and how she helped the black hole be photographed, like it was her mm-hmm. algorithm that made it possible, thought I would give a quick shout out to her. She's 29 fucking years old, and her brain allowed a black hole to be photographed. Like, that's the first time ever. So that is freaking awesome. But I feel like a lot of people also aren't aware. They can kind of be aware of the girl that I, or the woman that I'm doing, but I told her to, like, a few people before today, and I was like, you know, the woman who made a moon landing possible, and they were like... I don't, I don't know her name. I said her name and they blanked at me. Her name was Margaret Hamilton. You ready for this? I am. Yeah. When you mentioned her earlier, I, I don't know who she is. That name doesn't sound familiar. Exactly. If you scroll through Facebook every once in a while, you'll see her picture pop up and I'll put that in the notes and I'll explain it later, but she'll pop up on your feed, but then you forget her name completely, but the picture stays with you. So she was born August 17th in 1936 in Paoli, Indiana. Uh, to a Kenneth Hayfield and a Ruth Esther Hayfield. Uh, so her dad was a college professor of philosophy, and her mom was a high school teacher. So educators, that's exciting. So Margaret Hamilton is actually known for being a software engineer, which is a term that she actually coined. In the time she worked, computer technology was a very new thing. So people couldn't go to school for software engineering. People often equated computer science as like a magic thing or like it was an art. And she was very adamant in reminding people that what she did was not magic. It was very much a science. And the way for her to reiterate that was to label herself and her peers as engineers. So from an early age, Hamilton was all about math and science. She was a curious kid. Uh, she got like asked a bunch questions. So she graduated high school in 1954, and then she moved on to study math and philosophy at Earlham College in Richmond, Indiana. It was there that she met her husband, James Cox Hamilton. They married in the late 1950s, moved to Massachusetts in 1959. The reason for that was he was studying law at Harvard. So while he was going to school, she was working to support the family, support him, her, and their new baby, Lauren. She took a job at MIT, she originally worked on software for predicting the weather. Um, however, people noticed her, and like within the next year, she started working on the Semi-Automatic Ground Environment Program. It was called SAGE for short, S-A-G-E. And it was a network of large computers that helped develop radar and computer systems for the military to like track down enemy aircraft, guided weapons, just kind of the eyes and ears. Yeah, yeah, because we're in the whole Cold War going on right now at that point. Yeah, 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 yeah. So... She does that for a little bit, but you remember the 1960s, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So there was an intense race involving the United States and like six other countries to see which nation could get man to the moon first. It was mostly predominantly the United States versus Soviet Russia. And it was like this constant back and forth. So Kennedy was the one that was like, no, we need to move forward in science. Somehow, some way, we need to become a better nation, and this is how we're going to do it. We're going to put the man on the moon. It's going to be us. So who did the U.S. employ to help get a man to the moon? 
they reached out to the Charles Stark Draper Laboratory at MIT. So the lab had been around since 1932. Its main goal is to help out the government and NASA when it comes to like technology that's used for guidance, navigation, control, things like that. Margaret, at that time, is hired by the lab to work on the Apollo missions. So she worked crazy long hours, would bring her child, Lauren, into the lab, would even sleep in the lab. Like this place was her home. Mm-hmm. So it kind of reminded me of when you were at the studio like during college. You would never come home. Yeah, I was always at the studio. <laughs> exactly. And then by like 1965, she was the director of our team at the lab. So she was bumping up real quick. Quick aside, if you don't know what the Apollo missions are, I don't know how to help you in life. But I can help you with this particular knowledge, which is the Apollo 11 mission was the first ever manned lunar space mission in 1969. So if you remember Buzz Aldrin, Neil Armstrong, things like that, it was that mission was what she was working on. Um, And they work on a lunar module called the Eagle. Again, software engineering was a very new concept. In all seriousness, like Hamilton and her team had to learn how to code on the job. So imagine (laughs) they were constantly working by trial and error. They were pioneering a brand new science while they were building software for the missions to computers. So not only were they like learning a new way to code things, but they were doing so to send people on the moon. Like no freaking pressure. None whatsoever. (laughs) (laughs) Like nobody's ever done this kind of thing before. We need you to do that. and We need you to send two people out into space. They may die. It's fine. I just, that blows my mind. Blows my mind. It was her and her team and that was it. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I couldn't do it. I would I would snap under the pressure. No questions asked. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's, uh, it's a lot of pressure. And yeah, thankfully none of my art tends to be life or death. So I don't, I don't know how I would handle that. I mean, I'm general practice, like veterinary medicine, and I still like... <laughs> I'm still like, is this, wait, this is fine, right? This is, (laughs) it's not quite life or death until somebody doesn't realize that it's life or death. And then they bring in an animal that's practically coding and you're like, this is not the place for you. You need at least 48 hour hospitalization fluids and, oh, I don't know, a whole bunch of other things. Please go to this location. Thanks. Good luck. Um, yeah, because we just don't have the facilities for that. But working with lives is very, uh, it's nerve-wracking. So I, I get it. I'm not probably not to the, the degree that she was, she was feeling, but I get it. Yeah, yeah, the scope of it. She, yeah, so she would later tell people that no one knew what they were doing. It was like the wild, wild west. No, I imagine it's something completely <laughs> new. You've got no pre-existing infrastructure to follow. You're just kind of like stumbling around in the dark you're like i guess this is gonna work i mean let's try it let's see what happens she's like this is fine everything's fine <laughs> like that meme of a dog like surrounded by oh, yeah, fire yeah 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 that's that's what i imagine she was like so the first computer that they were working on was going to be on the spacecraft from earth to the moon and then the second was going to be on the module that landed on the moon itself the eagle each computer weighed about 70 pounds so think about that for a second that's a large dog is that the size of your dog? He's 60 pounds. He's a little overweight. Okay. All right. So one of your dogs and throw in a cat too. Yeah. Throw in, throw in, um, throw in Zoe. Yeah. Miss Kitty. Okay. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I suddenly had a mental visual of Victor with Zoe riding Victor, but Zoe has like a cowboy hat on. Oh, I imagine them both in like astronaut gear, but they're like, stuck together and miss kitty is not happy about this situation at all oh like she's the backpack for victor like she's just yeah like, oh. actually that's a lot funnier <laughs> she has that face and she's like i hate all of you i'm gonna slit all of your throats in your sleep <laughs> yeah you know something loving and supporting like that <laughs> I w- i'm gonna say that zoe's a very sweet lady but she does not take your shit so no she i mean she's mellowed out out over the years but uh i mean give her a break she was a stray (laughs) so we've got 70 pound computers how many computers were there it was it was just the two it was one on the yeah one on going to like kind of the outer orbit of the moon and then one was on the module that would come off of that and find it okay that would land yeah 
Hamilton and her team had the foresight to understand that computers could solve problems before they happened. So she made sure that her team created software that could work in real time and prioritize jobs. It had to know when to override less important commands. And, you know, I'm not really sure what the other software engineers, like, what their reaction to that was or, like... I mean, again, it's new science. I'm sure nobody had, like, a preconceived notion of, that's silly. That'll never work. Because everybody's like, sure. Yeah, shit, why not? Yeah, why not? go. Government gave us a whole bunch of money. Let's just do this thing. Yeah. So she and her team programmed the Apollo Guidance computer code by hand. They wrote it on coding sheets and then sent them to key punching machines, right? The program cards that resulted out of the key punching machines were sent to a giant computer overnight that would process them. So they would come back in the morning with, like, coffee in their hands, and they would look at these, like, what was processed. And if problems came up, they would go back to the drawing board. They're like, oh, fuck, we got to do this thing. They just crashed into an asteroid. There's actually a picture of her standing next to a tower of binders that held the handwritten code. So, like, as tall as her. Okay, yeah, so then I, I have seen that image then. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's, that's like the famous one. Nobody can tell you your fucking name, but she's, that's, most of that is her. Yeah. It's crazy. <laughs> it's insane. I don't, I cannot grasp this at all, but whatever. Like, she may not have wanted people to think of what she did as magic, but I can't even begin to understand how these codes are processed. I've, like, never been able to understand it. Anything with computers, I'm just like, ah, it's working. Thanks for making Spotify a thing. Thanks for allowing me to edit this podcast. But I Mm -hmm. could not tell you the ins and outs of this at all. So July 20th, 1960 rolls around, and the crew on the Apollo space mission, it's been in space for like four days, and they're finally ready to land on the moon. The entire country is losing its goddamn mind. Um, However, there was a bit of a snag before the land. About 6,000 feet above the moon's surface. Eagle, like the module, is already in its like descent burn. Like it's still going. But mm-hmm. alarms are starting to go off. Ooh, that's never a good sign. The computer was in executive overflow. So the computer recognized that it could not complete all of the allotted tasks in real time. On time. So the computer kind of rebooted itself, if you will. Like eliminated, eliminated any unnecessary tasks asked of it at the moment, and focused on the one task that would get the boys onto the moon safely. This thing in the 1960s was like, this is not, I don't need this, I need this. Like, it's practically thinking for itself. What? Yeah, yeah, I mean, that's what I was programmed to do. It's not all, not I, all that hard I work mean, I know, for. like, I know it's like, if then, then, like, if this, then that sort of thing. I know there are algorithms, but, like, I just, I don't understand. She, she, like, commented on this later, and she was like, sorry, this is a quote. To blame the computer for the Apollo 11 problems is like blaming the person who spots a fire and calls the fire department. Actually, the computer was programmed to do more than recognize error conditions. A complete set of recovery programs was incorporated into the software. The software's action, in this case, was to eliminate lower-priority tasks and reestablish the more important ones. The computer, rather than almost forcing an abort, prevented an abort. If the problem hadn't recognized this problem and taken recovery action, I doubt if Apollo 11 would have been the successful moon landing it was, a.k.a. they would have crashed and died. Did they get shit after the fact for how the computer behaved? Is that why she was saying that? I I think that there might have been a little bit of like, well, what's up with the computer? Why did the alarms even go off? Okay. Yeah. Be like, oh, I'm sorry. Did you just program something to land on the fucking moon? Yeah, I mean, I, I, that's absolutely her mind. Her like, her attitude was, I just put two men on the moon. What did you do today? Like, yeah, <laughs> my software saved them. <laughs> like, just unreal. This woman was so brilliant. I can't even imagine. There's another quote from her. She was all about her work, so it was less to her about the fact that she put like the United States on the moon. She straight up was like, I remember thinking. Oh my god, it worked. I was so happy. But I was more happy about it working than about the fact that we landed. I mean, yeah, that's what she just worked on. That's her baby. Yeah. yeah. Like like she was but like and at the same time she'd even think about like, I mean, yeah, I helped us win the space race. That's cool. No, was just like, fuck yeah, my work. It's complete. <laughs> well, I mean, maybe wait until they get off the moon and come back and then you're like okay cool now i can appreciate everything but yeah yeah yeah. it was it was just kind of like a yeah she's a focused woman she's i I love her 
I'm a little annoyed though because she. I mean, we'll we'll get to the to the actual recognition later, but she brought man to the goddamn moon. And there's a documentary coming out this year with footage from the entire mission, which I'm going to watch because it looks amazing. Yeah. But I looked at the cast list on IMDb. There's no Margaret Hamilton. It's like Buzz Aldrin as himself, Lily Aldrin as himself or as herself. Was it Lily Aldrin? Is that the wife? Oh, I don't know. But like, she's not on there. Like they're using like never like never seen footage and she's not even in like on the cast list. So I'm a little annoyed. And like I don't remember ever watching a space mission that involved like because okay, do you remember watching like I don't know how many of these movies you've seen, but you know, my dad is my dad and he watches a lot of like action movies, would take us to a lot of action movies and like a lot of like space movies. Very rarely have I seen a movie and I could be wrong. I I can't. If anyone knows of any of these movies that actually recall her, I would love to know because it's been a while since I've seen any of these movies, but I don't think I've ever seen like a movie based off of the Apollo 11 mission that even remotely puts her in the, the shot at all. There's always some sort of problem like, okay, you know, there's, there's an, you know, alarms are going off. There's a 1201 or something like that. Uh, this is a go or no go. And then like the people are like, yeah, it's a go. You're good to go. And then they end up landing on the moon and it's like, it's like shaky and super dramatic. And then they finally get down there and everybody's super excited. But like that coding, that alarm, the reason they were like, oh shit, there's a 1201 is because of her software. Mm-hmm. But for now, we're going to talk about her moving on to a new kind of mission as a businesswoman. Does she go into real estate like someone else we talked about? No, she doesn't go into real estate. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that'd be fun, though. No, she actually was like, all right. I sent man to the moon, but I want the technology I helped create to grow faster, and I want more people to use it. So she starts a company called Higher Order Software in 1976. I could not get a lot of information on it, but that company essentially revamped her technology so that it worked quicker, it was easier to use, and all we really know is that our military still uses the technology developed by Higher Order. So they still, like, their missiles, their guidance systems, their navigational, like, those things like that, they're still using it from her company. Okay. All right. Cool. Yeah. But I guess like she got bored and then in 1985 she left and she founded Hamilton Technologies instead. Yeah. So this company, it still exists. Its whole thing is the Universal Systems Language, also known as the USL. This particular language is based off of a math theory that Margaret developed. Okay. Yeah. I'm not familiar with that. I know a few um, like programming languages in passing, but that's the one that I haven't heard of before. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, I figure, I remember you taking, like, a computer class, but I never oh, took. Yeah. Yeah. I remember you hating it. And this is not one of those classes that I wanted to fill my knowledge with because, again, I don't understand computers. But she developed it. She was like, I am created a theory and, and then I'm going to also develop a language, programming language that essentially plays off of my math theory. So here we mm. go. I really tried, I tried so hard to understand what the fuck was happening with this language. But we all know how I feel about math and math like things. Like, I don't really know how to understand this to, in non math terms. And I just barely understand like the basics of it. I'm not really going to go into the coding language at all. But if anybody okay. has any like insight on it, yeah. No, I mean, like, I'm going to, there are a few things that I kind of get. If, anyone could tell me in layman's terms like like as if you're talking to a child what this language or how it works I would greatly appreciate it like literally anything (laughs) just send it I'm less interested in how it works but rather what it does to me that's what's important I don't need to know the mechanics behind it part of me no because like I'm always like well how does that work like well explain that like that's that's what I do and especially things that I don't know like computer programming. I don't have the time to sit down and like actually teach myself. I think the most I did was HTML, but that was so basic compared to like other, like this, this, oh my God. All I'm going to say is that it was developed based off the patterns Hamilton noticed when she was working on the Apollo 11 mission. So there are F maps and T maps. And I'm assuming F in the F maps is for functions, like in calculus. So... 
we literally just plug numbers into parent functions to get a value. I'm guessing depending on what the F maps are, it dictates what the T maps are used to. So there, it's a it's a parent map and little baby maps, and the parents tell the baby maps what to do. Okay, all right. Things are apparently categorized in like six different axioms, and based off where they're characterized, those are the maps you use. All I know is that this language is a language designed to help companies create software that does exactly what the software did for Apollo. So um, so it was just to think preventatively and to put out fires before they start, essentially. Okay, so that's cool. She was able to take the program that she wrote while at MIT and under federal contract and be able to privatize it for public enterprise use. Yes. You'd think that might be more of like a the government would be like, nah, let's not share that with everyone who can buy it. Yeah, I mean, like, but at this time, like, it's, it was 20 years after the fact at this point. Oh, that's right. Okay, because we're in the 80s at this point. All right. Yeah. So it was, a, it was a little less like, now you can bring man to the moon three years later. No, it's like, we've already all been to the moon. <laughs> been there, done that. Everyone's doing cocaine and crack. Exactly. Welcome to the 80s. <laughs> Welcome to David Bowie. <laughs> Reaganomics. That shit does not trickle down. By the way, I'm just disclaimer. There's nothing. I I love David Bowie. I'm just saying that that's that's the beauty of the 1980s. Just throwing that out there. Anyway, does your brain hurt, Megan? Because mine does. Is is she making money from the software she's selling to companies? Oh, absolutely. Of course she is. All right, good, good. Guarantee you, she is nice and happy in Massachusetts right now. She's not dead. She's thriving. She's probably on her retirement. So she's not dead, because I think every scientist you've done so far has been dead. Nope. My girl is alive and kicking. All right, cool. We got a live one. Nice. I'm going to knock on this wood. All right. Uh, That did not sound like wood. <laughs> yeah, so we're just going to move on to the recognition she has received. Awesome. Good, good. In 1986, she received the Augusta Ada Lovelace Award by the Association for Women in Computing. So I'm sure at one point I'm going to do her. Ada Lovelace was the first computer programmer. So this award is given to individuals who like excelled in either or both of like two areas. So the first one is like outstanding scientific and technical achievement. And the other one is extraordinary service to the computing community through their accomplishments and contributions on behalf of women in computing. In 2003, she was given the NASA Exceptional Space Act Award for scientific and technical contributions. So that was $37,200, and it was the largest amount awarded to any individual in NASA's history. That's pretty awesome. 2009, she received the Outstanding Alumni Award from her college. 2016, she received the Presidential Medal of Freedom from Barack Obama. Oh, shit. Yeah. April 28th, 2017, she... Oh, was that today? Is that today? Yeah! April 28th, she received the Computer History Museum Fellow Award, which honors exceptional men and women whose computing ideas have changed the world. That was two years ago today. Mm -hmm. 2017, also a woman of NASA. So there's this Lego set. Ugh! What? Never mind all the award money and the fellowship and getting an award... From Barack Obama, but imagine being in a Lego set. Oh, my God. It's her and uh, a few other figures in um, in NASA, like women. Mm-hmm. So, obviously, Margaret Hamilton, Sally Ride, who's an astronaut, Mae Jemison, who's also an astronaut. I'm going to do both of them. And then Nancy Grace Roman. She was an American astronomer, one of the first female executives at NASA. Nice. And then 2018... She was invested honoris causa by the Polytechnic University of Catalonia. Not Ooh. Sure how that happened, but mm-hmm. live, kicking, happy in a Lego set, which I want. I want that Lego set now. Yeah, that would be pretty awesome to have. I need more Legos in my life. We've got a duffel bag full of them. I know you do. He yeah. never takes them out. I was never allowed to touch them growing up. I don't know if I'm allowed to play with them, but we'll see. He might come home one day, especially if it's a snow day. Please, please, on a snow day, pull out that duffel bag and watch him come home and just go. (gasps) Yeah, move the coffee table out of the way and me and the dog. We're just going to go bonanzas. 
having fun. <laughs> oh my god. That's so funny. Okay. So that's that's what I have. Alright, sweet. Well it's nice to know the story behind the woman that, you know, we see the image going around every now and again on the social media. So it's cool to be able to put a name to it and to know how what her contribution was. On my end, we are not going to the moon. We're going to France. There's no computers in the making of this story. Although if our woman had lived long enough, she definitely would have had them. And she would have been one of the first ones to have them. Because that was that was her MO. Oh man. I'm doing my person super fucking super duper wealthy. Like stupid amount of money wealthy. Like we can't even begin to imagine how much wealth she has because you and I have never known anything close to anything she had. So last episode we we covered Beatrix Potter and growing up in the late 19th century, her family was very well off. People were all like, oh, she's middle class. Bullshit. She was wealthy. Well, they don't have shit on the Duchess, Duzes, Marie, Adrienne, Anne, Victorine, Clementine de Rauschen R. de Mormont. And yes, I butchered the fuck out of that. But I tried, goddammit. <laughs> How many? I lost count. How many names was that? Okay, so one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Not including her duchess title. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Tell me she just went by Indeed. duchess. I would have just gone by duchess. No, she goes by Anne. Oh, okay. Yeah. So uh, really? Gonna... All of yeah. the names? She chose Anne? Yeah. Okay. My first name is Anna, and I refuse to be called. Like, no. <laughs> you okay, have so well... many names, and you choose Anne? Technically, that's almost her middle name. That's the third one in from Marie Adrienne. So, oh, yeah, we're going with Anne. It's just, you you really can't go by her initials because M-W-A-V-C-R-M doesn't really roll <laughs> off the tongue at all. <laughs> and that's just, it's a little bit mouthy. Oh, my God. And a little bit sharp. So <laughs> we're, going, we're going with Anne. All right. All right. So... She was born on February 10th in 1847 in Paris, France. And as I suggested, she came for money. Very old money. Like, trace your family line back to 730 old. Holy shit. Holy shit, indeed. So, you and me, Milena, we're like, we're mere mere peasants compared to her family line. Mm. Anne came from some of the oldest and the most distinguished noble families in France. Family coats counts and like everything people tied to the monarchy for centuries so given that Anne grew up very different from anyone that i've profiled so far right but the funny thing is that even with those two super impressive family names she's got it was the least blue blood of her family that gave her the bulk of her wealth and it's all thanks to champagne so in 1805 Anne's great-grandfather dies he was the son of a businessman who had a lot of different fractions of the family business and her great-grandmother only 25 at the time was like shit i got this and she took over the family business i was reading about her because i wasn't sure you were telling me you sent me a text and i was like let's see what i've got right so i looked her up and i was going to do her and i didn't because she's more of a businesswoman but she is her story yeah she did have some some scientific contributions to the champagne making process, which I thought might be an interesting angle for you. And this is Madame Cliquelot. And what she did, she looked at all the different aspects of the family business and was like, we're going to focus on champagne. And that's the only thing we're going to do. And she's credited with improving champagne quality and creating rosé. And today the business is still going really strong. Shit. Yeah, I, she was an amazing businesswoman. If we went over businesswomen, she would be really interesting to do. And hearing a little bit of that story, it makes me just want to exclusively buy that type of champagne. And it won't set you back that much. Some of their vintage select bottles are expensive, but you can get a pretty decent one for, you know, in the, like the $30, $40 range. When we, when we hit our one-year party, you want to? Oh, we are totally hitting up that Madame Cliquelot. We definitely are. <laughs> Sweet. 
So Anne was the sole direct heir of the Champagne fortune, and she's depicted in an 1863 painting alongside her great-grandma, and her grandmother's super-duper regal with, like, their fucking estate behind them, and little great-granddaughter Anne is, like, laying at her grandmother's feet, like, hey guys, what's up? (laughs) It's a pretty funny (laughs) painting. Now, unlike Beatrix in the last episode, where there's, like, countless people that have written about her... There's more about Anne's family as a whole rather than on her personally. Hmm. Just because she's coming from two extremely wealthy families that have a a long history in, you know, the big politics of France. Right. Now, she was born in 1847. And a year later, there was the revolutions of 1848. And essentially widespread across Europe. There were Republican revolts against the monarchies. So that was going down in Italy and Russia, Prussia, Austria, Hungary. So that year, 1848, in France, the ruler was toppled. His main thing was centered on the wealthy bourgeoisie. And that most likely was really favorable to Anne's family. Now, like Beatrix, growing up in an upper class family meant a totally different social exposure for children and got private tutors but had few friends and like every artist we've covered she was creative from a young age showing skills in painting wax modeling drawing and music and her family did support that which was nice now i think maybe in part because she was the only surviving child like her dad and maternal grandfather they were very supportive of her education yeah, similar to Beatrix. I mean, she was she was close with her father. At one point, he taught her how to handle a four-horse drawn carriage when she was growing up. I can just imagine the actual, like, her dad, mm-hmm. like, teaching her how to drive a carriage. Because that's, that's an experience when your dad, like, teaches you how to drive a car. And there's a lot of screaming. <laughs> Be like, okay, so now we're going to parallel park. <laughs> like, uh, no, and I... Yeah, I think, I mean, they did, they had a son, but I mean, he passed away as a child. And I think, you know, the dad was like, and you're going to learn everything because you're the only one I got left. (laughs) Oh my God. Now, when the time came for Anne to be debuted for marriage in Paris, she knew it was her family name and the money that would sway people uh, and not actually what she had to offer. So... Mm. When she first met the man that she would eventually marry, it was his indifference to her that was really attractive. What? He he kind of, he was like, yeah, whatever, I don't care. And she was like, yeah, I like this guy. Obviously, like, he's not in it because of my family name. Oh, oh, I thought he was, oh, I thought it was just like indifferent to her, but like schmoozing up to dad. No, no, he he was kind of indifferent to her. Like, he didn't care, like, what family she came from. And Oh, okay. Sorry. I, like, took that a totally different way, and I was so mad for, like, two seconds. I was like, what do you mean she just said yes? Okay, no, that's a little, that's that's better. Okay. No, I, cool. yeah, when they were introduced, like, it was just, he was indifferent to her. He was like, yeah, whatever. Now, he was seven years older, educated at a military academy, and he was also from a wealthy and a blue-blooded family. That was kind of on par with her family history, too. Six months after meeting him, she really got to know him as he recovered from being shot in the face. He was really big on hunting, very active in that, and it was a hunting accident. She was at his bedside. The accident badly scarred his face. It cost him an eye, but they really Mm. got to know one another during this time, and six months later, they were married in 1867. Anne was 20. Um, Emmanuel, you know, the future 12th Duke of Duzes, you know, he's 27. But the marriage was actually a really happy one. And they, I think they legit really loved one another. Over eight years, Anne had four children. And in 1872, with Emmanuel's father passing, he became Duke. She was Duchess and she's 25. I mean, at 25, I was excited about having my own dog and sharing a really crappy South Philly townhouse with you. It was the best. I know. It was fun. It was, yeah, it was a lot of fun. Floors were a little <laughs> uneven, but that was our home for a few years. So it's <laughs> funny to learn about these people and to be like... What was I doing when I was 25 or, you know, about who you just did and be like, what will we be doing when we're 29? Probably not getting people on other planets and moons. No. But we're here doing this. This is fine. Yeah. Everything's fine. We're doing good. (laughs) Now... They've got money, they've got respect, yeah, they've got kids, and happy, you know, ideally they're happy. And in 1878, Emmanuel dies. 
No. Yeah. Well, I mean, he still had that lead shot in his head from the, a- oh, the hunting accident. Oh, God. Right. Wow. It took him that long? I mean, yeah, a little little bit. But Anne's 31. And I mean, she was fucking devastated. And she never remarries or takes a lover for the rest of her life, saying, quote, his death shattered my life. Oh, my God. Yeah. Now, post-Emmanuel life for Anne, it was not one of a reclusive, grieving widow. She did wear black to signify mourning for the rest of her life, but she really threw herself into everything she did. For her interests, like, I think she was so successful because of her wealth, not in being able to buy her way into things. Like, she earned her things on her own merits, but, like, money can stymie or spur, like, social and cultural expectations of people, especially women. And in this case, Anne had such a financial backing. I think it helped encourage her to do whatever she wanted because she knew finances wouldn't get in the way. So it definitely allowed an attitude of like, of course I can go do fill in the blank. Like, why wouldn't I? And I think she just had that personality, that drive of like, she knew whatever she put her mind to, she could accomplish. Right. Uh, Which is pretty awesome. And I mean, as we'll learn about, she got shit done. She was definitely able to flex those traditional expectations of women, which is nice because, you know, definitely not everyone can do that. One area she makes large financial investment in is politics. And she could be impulsive and by her own admission, a little naive. And that did cause her some embarrassment and a loss of a good chunk of change over this guy, General George. I'm sorry. General George? General George. I'm I'm so sorry. I like had a list of French names and places. I was like, all right, I need to go through and practice and repeat to myself. And I'm still fucking it up. So I'm sorry. Lo siento. So I'm Americana, all right? (laughs) Now, going back to that little snapshot of France, we've got the Third Republic, no kings, and in March of 1888, Anne's 41. This super charming, charismatic guy hits her up, and I was all like, hey, wouldn't it be great to restore the monarchy again? What? Yeah. He was like, this is who you should support, and it'd be totally great if you give us money. We can totally make it happen, I swear. Lies. He's like, I'll just pretend to be a Republican in public and not like the Republicans today, but like, hey, I like democracy Republican. And he's described as a, quote, gifted liar. Mm. I have a family this man is a fucking pathological liar. I've met a few of those in my yeah, life. Master manipulator. Mm-hmm. And Anne's in. Mm. She drops 25000 on the spot. And with inflation, that's over a hundred grand in USD. Oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. Cause she has, she has royalist tendencies. Like she, she's like, yeah, democracy's great, but I really think we still need like a bloodline ruler to oversee everything. That's so weird. So she's not like advocating a complete dismantling of the republic but she's like i just think we can make it better if we you know still had royalty i mean she's also super duper devout catholic so think about that power structure Mm. of like you know still needing that singular person appointed so i I think that's probably Mm -hmm. that went hand in hand and why she was she felt that way now later on they tried to hit her up for more money and if i did you know historical conversion and inflation right she dropped almost 16 fucking million dollars on this guy 16 million 16 million dollars all on the chance that she she would be the reason to restore the monarchy to france holy shit yeah holy shit i mean when i said she has a buck fuck amount of money before like i wasn't joking like this is the amount of money that she has to play with that you and i just i i can't imagine so spoiler it didn't work (laughs) yeah after this she didn't fuck with politics at all no. She she put her time and she put her money into causes that I think she knew she actually could make a difference in and mm-hmm. wasn't going to result in some guy fleeing the country when the plan goes tits up. Stay in your lane. Yeah. So <laughs> oh despite God. that little political embarrassment, um, she was fucking killing it, raising her four kids, managing all the family properties, supporting charities, hunting, writing, campaigning against women's legal and social discrimination. And doing the art making too. Yay! Yeah. I mean, when I mentioned this, she's in, she does a lot, which is pretty awesome. Now, before we jump into her creative work, I just want to go over some other interests of hers real quick. And wow, there's quite a few. So, from her late husband, she did develop a fondness for hunting, and it made her the most well known to the masses of Europe. And that was for being Europe's leading woman hunter. 
she would host this really big hunt after Easter every year. And I think about the aristocrats on horses and red coats and trumpets and like masses of <laughs> hunting dogs. Yeah, that's exactly what was going on. And it would attract thousands of people and there would be special trains coming out of Paris just for people to come and see this. And she would write and lecture on hunting in 1923. And at this point, she's 76. She dares the government to make her wolf lieutenant. And it's a ceremonial position carrying a game warden rights and responsibilities to deal with wolves and vermin. And they're like, shit, yeah, why not? And so she was the first woman to become fucking wolf lieutenant, which sounds super badass. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. And then she was also honorary president of the Wolf Lieutenant Association. This is how much of a dork I am. My mind went straight to a wolf deck for Magic the Gathering. I don't know what that is. <laughs> like, I want to make a card with her on it and have her be like a planeswalker. And then she have her little wolf minions. And she'd be all green. She would, And you'll see, there's a picture of her um, in her hunting gear with her, she had like this like tri-fold like hat on, black silver trim. And she would always on the hunt have a knife on her, like ready for the kill. Yeah, I mean, she was not fucking around. Like, when she was hunting, she was in one of her best, like, elements. Oh, my God. I mean, I don't even like hunting. I I don't appreciate it at all. But if you're that into something and you're that good at it, like... Oh, yeah. She she went hunting um, on a regular basis every week, as long as the weather permitted, you know, during, well, from spring into fall. And there's one mention. She had a fucking steam yacht. That she would drive, like, when she went on some hunting excursions. She would just shoot game from her yacht that ran well, on Well, okay, not from her yacht, but she would take this this yacht of hers. Okay, like, she didn't try. Okay, I've no, no documentation on that, so it's all speculative. <laughs> I mean, I would. <laughs> but, so at the same time she's doing this, she's a member of the Society for the Protection of Animals. What? Yeah. I mean, she she really, she was dignified and she had a lot of respect for everything she did. And so for her, it was totally natural to be like, well, yeah, I can go out and, you know, kill these big trophy items, but people need to treat their animals in a humane manner. I don't understand. Yeah. I I mean, like, I appreciate her her work for animals. Like, yes, absolutely. Put your money into that. Absolutely. But what? And like, I eat meat. I'm not a vegetarian. Right? Yeah. But if you're gonna if you're gonna kill an animal, you gotta kill it for its like the food, what it has to give you, in my opinion. And I, you yeah. know that that inf- that is not that was a trophy, that was a game. Yeah, but I don't know if she would go on these hunts and then maybe whoever processed the kill, if she was like, yeah, you can have the meat, I just want the head. I have a feeling the kill that she would make, she would probably want the animal to go to use to someone, even if she didn't eat it. You know, she could be like. Hey, you know, assistant, do you need, like, do you want the skins? Do you want the pelt? Do you want the meat at all? I have a feeling all she right. kind of redistributed things. That's that's kind of her big attitude with everything else she does. But again, I don't know. I couldn't find any records on that specific detail. So she was really big in hunting. She was also really big in charity work and super duper active in the feminist movement going on in France. Uh, she supported a shit ton of charities, giving them both her time and her money. And kind of surprisingly, the bulk of them supported women and children. Hmm. Yeah, pretty badass. She worked with League Against Cancer, the Society for the Protection of Widows and Children of the Great War, uh, a sanatorium for young women with tuberculosis, gave money for women <laughs> with cancer. I know there's always fucking tuberculosis. <laughs> I'm sorry. I couldn't help myself. <laughs> Continue. Women with cancer. Not funny. Yeah, cancer is not funny. Uh, also a retirement home for women artists and then also gave money for the building of a cathedral in Dakar to honor explorers of Africa because at this time there's a shit ton of efforts between France and European countries to go colonize in Africa. Now Anne's feminist work was a little bit unexpected given that she had those royalist leanings. Yeah. She'd go to mass every day so she was like a devout Catholic and Unlike other high-class women of her age, she was she was really actually involved in the social work and in using visibility to further causes. And with her quick wit, like the press loved her because she was just such a fun mm-hmm. character. She co-founded in 1906 La Francis, the official journal of the French uh, women's movement, 
She helped organize the French Union for Women's Suffrage, presided over the Lyceum Club of Paris, which was for women interested in art, science, and social works, and it was meant to be a contrast to men's club. With her work for women's rights, she got to know some really polarizing figures, Louise Michel, and she's considered the founder of anarchist feminism. What? Yeah, Anne was really stepping out of her social bubble and really interacting with people, and for that, a lot of people were really impressed because they're like, wow, not a lot of super doofy wealthy women are doing this and actually actively involved. And her attitude towards feminism and arguably life in general was about doing something, about being active as opposed to theorizing on a subject. That's important. You can't just like talk. You have to do something. Yeah, no. And I mean, even in her older age, she's still, she's getting shit done. Now, on top of the hunting, on top of the charity work, on top of her social activism, she was also an author. She was publishing plays and poems and novels. So that earned her membership in the Society of Men of Letters of France, the Society of Dramatic Authors and Composers. She's also a really gifted musician, but she really focused her creative work on sculpting. And yeah, I've, I've done a lot of sculptures so far in this podcast, but hey, personal bias, I'm a sculptor, and it's really neat learning about other sculptors. Okay, for the next two episodes, you can't do a sculptor. I know. Well, you can. You guys can suggest any artists, any sculptors, or otherwise on our contact page. So I'm I'm happy to hear about other suggestions, and especially about like non-Western women. Yeah, I was looking for a non-Western scientist this time around, and I couldn't. Yeah. I couldn't find any. And if I did, it was very little on it. Yes. Yeah. That's one thing yeah. that can be frustrating is that especially um, I've got a really great encyclopedia set that helps me learn about so many different women. But it's written by, you know, Western women from the Western perspective. And um, it's it's a lot of European and American women. Right. Yeah. I'm like, it, it doesn't take away from what these women did and contributed. But there's so much more to feminism. What's, and what's What's going on on the other side of the hemisphere, guys? Yeah, so we'd be more than happy if you guys have any suggestions. Go to that contact page on the website, myfavoritefeminist.com. Yay! Now, her work is it's very much in line with contemporary work of the period. We're talking neoclassical. So think about those like larger-than-life monuments, like the historical ones you'll see in big cities. Right. So she did stuff like that, and she also did busts. So very traditional work tended to focus on historical or religious subject matter, all figurative. And she worked under some really high-profile artists that tutored her. They didn't need her money, so it seems like they did it because she did have skill and they recognized that. Right. Again, going back to what I said earlier, it wasn't just her way of, well, I'm rich, I can buy my way in. No, she actually worked for it. She was able to do the work. Now, one of them, Antoine Mercy, he has some well-known public work here in the U.S. He did the Francis Scott Key Monument in Baltimore. Oh, shit. Yeah. So again, I mean, she's working with some big names. I mean, these are the guys that, you know, helped teach her. And she, she became president of the Union of Women Painters and Sculptors. For Anne, I mean, she started seriously started focusing on her sculpting after Emmanuel's death, saying, quote, the arts have sustained me greatly in my hours of bitterness. In my studio, thumbs in the clay and chisel in hand, I think of nothing else. Aww. Yeah. Which, I mean, not that my significant other has died from being shot in the face, but I can relate to that. You know, you get in the studio and you get in your own zone and it doesn't matter if you're sculpting or painting or doing printmaking, anything. It's That's all you can throw yourself into, which I love. Now, unfortunately, there is pretty limited records of her work that I came across. She signed her work, Manuela. Looking for work under her full name or under that name yields fairly little. One piece I was able to come across was in the late 1890s and that was a monumental sculpture of a saint hubert and he's the patron saint of hunters so no no big surprise she did that yep yeah and she exhibited that at the salon of french artists and a marble version of that was shown at the 1893 world columbian exposition in chicago with these world expos they were meant to show the best of each nation in science and technology and art and with the chicago one it was the second one after the 1876 philly expo to have a women's pavilion and this time it was really prominent and it was designed by a woman and for Anne, this woman's pavilion supported the same ideals as her which honestly mainly focused around white middle to upper class feminism Mm. yeah i mean we are in our early stages yeah and also in France, there wasn't so much the racial racial element that there was in the United mm-hmm. States. That yeah. was just, that was a dialogue that they didn't have to have because there's just a totally different set of circumstances. Right. Absolutely. Like the United States has such a unique and situation up. when it comes to it's super fucked up. Yeah. yeah. 
no matter where you go, like, yeah, there, I'm sure there's some racial tension, but it's nothing like ours. It's nothing so, like, yeah, yeah good old institutionalized American racism. Uh, we do that really well, unfortunately. Yeah. From the Chicago piece, um, she won for a monumental sculpture, and uh, the piece she had, it was transported up to Canada to an aristocratic French settler. Huh. Yeah. Why not? Now, one thing that was worth noting is the rejection of her work in 1895, she's 48, by the Salon des Champs-Élysées. It was a multi-figurative composition, and they didn't think that all five figures were her. They didn't, they were just like, you didn't do all five of these? Yeah, she, they were like, oh, we don't think you did all of them. What, why, under what, what proof? Like, what? I, I don't know, I can, I got like nothing. I found info about the broad details of her life, but nothing specific right. to things like that. Right. Understandably, it pissed her off. And two years later, the finished work was dedicated with the president of France attending. Hmm. Yeah, so I'm just gonna be like, eh, fuck you guys. Like, no, it's my work, I did it. I'm fully capable now, another piece I was able to come across and get some history on was a 1901 piece, Monument to Joan of Arc. Essentially, in 1896, a mayor wanted a statue to honor Joan of Arc. She'd frequented the town, and she was selected to do the work. At the time, she's the, the president of the Union for Women Artists and Sculptors. It was done in a copper alloy atop like this really big concrete and granite pedestal. Got the images on the show notes. Dedicated to the town, right in the heart of town. Fast forward to 1941. And there's a law to, quote, remove with a view to the recasting of the statues and monuments in copper alloy, not in any artistic or historical character. Mm. So essentially, melt that shit down so we can use it. And then they're like, we'll just put up like a stone statue instead. No big deal. In 1944, it it is torn down and it's still under German rule at this point. And it's super shitty because the alloy that was used in our sculpture it was completely worthless. Like, oh, man. Yeah, yeah, you can melt it down, but you can't do shit because of the composition of it. But thankfully, there was some local incentive. And in 18, or 1982, a new statue did replace Anne's. And for those in the community that remembered hers, they said it, just, it wasn't as good. And I, I was able to come across a few images of the, the original sculpture. And I mean, overall, her work, it's very good. And it's, it's very fitting um, with the art of the time. But her participation and assertion as a woman sculptor, it really helped pave the way for other women. And she had that effect in other areas of her life, like becoming wolf lieutenant. Now, when war broke out in 1914, Anne was 67, and she wasn't fucking around. I mean, we've got the Great War going on. She turned one of her estates, one of her fucking castles, into a military hospital. She trained and certified to become a nurse. And by the Stop. end of the Great War, she was awarded not only by France, but Belgium, Serbia, and the Holy See for her contributions during wartime. Oh, my God. She's 67. Oh, my God. It's it, Her story is fucking crazy. She's It's been so much fun <laughs> what? reading about her. What? Yeah. Like, we're not I done mean- yet. <laughs> and no, legit, we there's still more. But wait. Oh, my God. There's more. I can't, Megan. Yeah. Can't. You imagine even the Pope is like, yeah, all right, cool. Give her an award. Oh, my the God. The fucking Pope. So with all those awards... So she was managing nurses on the front. She was organizing workshops for refugees. And she was also working with a surgeon, Maurice Marcelli, putting together the first mobile healthcare centers with three to four trucks. And they were able to treat up to 60 people a day on the front lines. That is so important. Oh, my God. Yeah. I mean, again, she's got the money to make a difference. And she's fucking doing it. Oh, my God. That's yeah. so cool. Now, I mean, she definitely challenge what was expected for a woman. At the age of 79 in 1926, she founded the Feminine Automobile Club of France, becoming the first woman in France to get a driver's license. What? And then the first woman in France to get a speeding ticket. Uh (laughs) Oh my god. I can't. I can't. I just hit the microphone a little bit, but I need to keep that laughing because that is pure joy coming out of my mouth right now. I, I love I her knew so you much. Love that. Oh my god! Yeah, and what's even shadier is that they didn't actually have a way of like documenting whether or not someone was legit going too fast, like over the speed limit. <laughs> so it was just the policemen in Paris, and we're like, mm, "No, I think you were going over. We're gonna fine you." Oh, my she's like, all right, God. shit, whatever. Like, <laughs> sure. Well, you know, I, I have oh, a shit ton of money. Oh. I can easily pay that little $10 fine. 
That's fine. <laughs> That's fine. Yeah, so she she led auto rallies around France and to Italy and Belgium and the Netherlands. In 1932, at the age of 85, she was named vice president of the women's group of the Aero Club. And a year later, she went on her first flight piloted by her grandson. So from having a car to forming a club to all the social work, her writing, her art, her music, her hunting, it was it was all facilitated by her wealth. But it, I mean, it really takes dedication to master any of those things. And I mean, Anne had a lot of advantages that other people just don't have. But I mean, she put in the work to make those things happen. And even with that, I mean, she used her means to rise up and support others, especially women with her money. And because of that, I mean, she used up most of her wealth by the time she passed away in 1933, dying suddenly from pneumonia. Man. Yeah. She used it all up? Pretty much. Yeah. I mean, even during life, occasionally she had to sell off a property or two to get more money. Huh. Yeah. Because she was just putting so much money into all the, ch- the charity work and all the events right. she would do. Right. And that, she's, she yeah, just... she's putting her money into her community and the people around her. Yes. Yeah. Because what the fuck is she going to do with that much money on herself, like by herself? I mean, yeah, you could have it go to your family after you die, but like, where's the fun in that? Exactly. Which actually, that probably might have pissed off some of our family members that, you know, here we got the Duchess eating up everyone's inheritance. But like at the same time, like if I, I think if I were in this situation, I would be like, okay, well, these people need actual help. And no matter what happens, my family members, they're going to be just fine. Yeah. They're still going to have some sort of like money. They're still going to be uh-huh. able to take care of themselves. These people, probably not. Yeah. No, and I mean, that's what she did. And that's why she, it's so amazing. And and with the large type of personality that she had, I was really surprised I couldn't find any books on her, at least not in English that I came across. I totally thought someone would have a biography of her out. I guess we just need to learn French now. I, yeah. All right. Good luck with that. <laughs> and I mean, it also would be one hell of a series. Can you imagine watching that on Netflix? Oh, I think. Yeah. I mean, the amount of money and the wealth and the backdrop. Okay. That's... That's our idea, and I, hands up, raised, I will be her. I will play her. Oh, Jesus. I will do it. <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, so for everything she did and how she spent her money and spent her means and, you know, what she was able to do, and it was really neat. I saw it. I was like, oh, she's an artist. All right, cool. Dibs. Done. I get to do do an episode about her. So, yeah, that's why, that's why for this episode she's my favorite feminist and why I got to tell you about her. That's pretty great. She's pretty awesome. <laughs> yeah, and again, you guys can go up on the show notes on the website and see images of her and images of the the few surviving images of her artwork. She's pretty badass. I'm glad we got to do pretty badass women this episode. I mean, I feel like every episode we get to do really badass women. Yeah, because you have to be. And had the money to be a little bit more badass than other people. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> we we both just need, like, a really rich great-grandmother to leave us a shit ton of money. Mm. How do we retroactively make that happen? Unless I'm secretly some sort of Colombian princess, I doubt it. I don't, yeah, I don't know. I gotta start digging on that Italian side of my family. <laughs> I mean, like, you bastards gave me an almost unibrow. It's the least you can do. <laughs> should see my body hair, goddammit. What of tweezing I have to do. <sighs> um, well, uh, again, if you guys have made it this far, God bless you. Um, from Spain to Australia to Alabama to Denver to anywhere and everywhere, we super duper appreciate it. And you guys are amazing and wonderful. And now you get to know and visualize my unibrow. <laughs> well, my, my non-existing unibrow. Thank you very much. I work very hard every day. If you want to learn more, at least visualize more about our podcast episodes, you can find us at myfavoritefeminist.com. We have an email if you want to tell us about the USL system or any kind of artist that you want us to like cover, anyone at all. Or, or how I just insulted your entire family with my shit French pronunciations, which, again. We are so sorry. We're sorry. Yeah. So if you wanted to do any of that... You can reach us at info at myfavoritefeminist.com. We also have a Facebook and an Instagram under My Favorite Feminist. 
And you can listen to us on Stitcher, TuneIn, Spotify, and iTunes. And if you're listening on iTunes, go ahead and rate us, subscribe, all that good stuff. It does help us out. And in the comments section below, you can let us know, would you ever actually get into a duel with somebody over your reputation? I don't, I mean, I've picked up archery again, and I do tend, I, I can have a good eye when I practice. So I feel like that would give me enough of a confidence to, like, get shot in the shoulder. I'd be like, yeah, I'll be fine. I'll be fine. And, you know, I'm not quick enough on the draw. And then I'm like, yeah, that's why I can't raise my left arm above my head. Yeah, you're not shooting to kill. You're just shooting to go. But I see, I'm, I don't, I don't care. I have had so many things said about me in my life that I just like, oh, that's cool. I'm going to go do my, my life now. I'm going to go be me. What To quote the great Childish Gambino, don't be mad because I'm doing me better than I'm doing you. Oh, shit. Oh, shit. All right. Well, thank you again, guys, for joining us. We really, we really do appreciate it. So until next time. Bye, guys. All right. See ya.